This is Channel 253. In this episode of Interchangeable White Ladies. The level of dysfunctional thinking that that kid had about really basic historical accuracy, but also just how it plays out in today's world is deeply disturbing. And the fact that he's, you know, going off to a fancy college and he has all the accolades academically, that is not a success story to me. Interchangeable White Ladies podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We We fly fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. One, two, two. interchangeable. White Ladies. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Annie. Our essential question today is how can we learn to be a threat to inequity in our spheres of influence in 2020? All right. So today we are super lucky to have two guests um, that have called in from various states across America. And I'm still here in Abu Dhabi. Um, We have Paul Gorski and Katie Swalwell. Katie Swalwell is Associate Professor of Social and Cultural Studies in the School of Education at Iowa State University, where she also leads the Education for Social Justice Graduate Certificate. I'm super interested in asking more about that because I don't know a lot about that. Um, Katie is most interested in what kinds of teaching and learning help people develop a critical consciousness at the K-12 level, especially in social studies and what she calls elite context. We'll ask her more about that as well. Uh, Her work has appeared in Rethinking Schools, Teaching Tolerance, Curriculum Inquiry, Democratic Education, Education Policy, Journal of Social Studies Research, and several edited volumes. Her award-winning book, Educating Activist Allies, was published by Rutledge in 2013. We're super excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks. Awesome. And our other guest is Paul Gorski, and this is from Paul's online bio. Paul is the founder of the Equity Literacy Institute and EdChange. He has 20 years of experience helping educators strengthen their equity efforts in classrooms, schools, and districts. He has worked with educators in 48 states and a dozen countries. Paul has published more than 70 articles and has written, co-written, or co-edited 12 books on various aspects of educational equity. So welcome, Paul. Thank you. Happy Mm -hmm. to be here. Excellent. So we like um, first to start with a little bit uh, more of your backstory as individuals or or people. How do you find yourself in the education world? Paul, do you want to go first? Uh, You go. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, I was always a history nerd growing up. And I think if you really, really love history and that's what you want to study, you have a few options for careers. And at the college that I went to, the University of Northern Iowa, had a really um, strong college of education. And so I thought, you know, when you're in your early 20s, you just want a job. You just want to be employed. And I thought, I bet I can get a job teaching that and I can go anywhere. And um, once I started field experiences, I fell in love with teaching and became really excited about um, public education and um, absolutely loved it. Taught high school and middle school social studies for several years and then eventually went to grad school at the University of Wisconsin, uh, where I got even more excited about social justice education specifically and starting to be able to put words and terms and have some um, like better skills to think about the things that I kind of intuited were wrong or messed up about what was going on in schools. It was nice to feel validated by that and to feel um, 
like there were these bodies of research and literature to help me work through that and what my obligations were, um, especially as a white woman working in education. So once, um, once I was there, I mean, you just get hooked. And once you start thinking about those things, you can't really stop. And then here I am, a professor, like 10, 15 years later. That's really exciting. That's great. How about you, Paul? <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, the most important two mentors I had growing up were educators, and they were both, um, they were both men of color. And, uh, and I sort of the early part of my life, most of what I remember is the contradiction between what I was learning and experiencing from them compared to my own family, which is, hmm. was a fairly conservative family with a very uh, conservative uh, father. And I started doing some community activism and uh, based on their inspiration and decided I need to figure out where I could focus that effort and just became really interested in uh, doing work in schools uh, around equity and social justice issues. So I kind of followed that passion and that's kind of what landed me uh, where I am now. Mm -hmm. And then of course, how did the two of you meet and what's kind of the primary focus um, since we're interviewing you both today? We met, um, gosh, I guess it was like 2011. So we're coming up on 10 years, which seems totally wild, but we met at George Mason University where I had my first job as a professor and was really, um, like I said, very fired up and very passionate and trying to think about linking scholarship and activism and education all together. And someone had recommended to me that, I, well, I had read some of Paul's work and then someone had said, oh, you know, he works at George Mason and I couldn't believe it. Like I had just gotten hired <laughs> like, oh, at so university cool. <laughs> where one of my like, you know, writing heroes worked and so he was really great to meet with and connect with and then we just hit it off right away and started to try to figure out what kinds of projects we could work on he was also wonderful about linking me in dc the kind of dmv area of washington dc what other activists and educators were doing like the teaching for change project this an education project really incredible resources right there in dc so it was just this like bonanza like this incredible person to be partnered with and then have as a friend and and be able to brainstorm and think about work we could do and how we could collaborate now you both work um you both built the equity lens framework is that correct or partnered with each other to to create that well what happened was i i was trying to develop a framework for what kinds of uh knowledge uh sort of challenging the idea that equity work is all just practical strategies that mm -hmm. we need ideological shifts to sustain the practical strategies. And I was trying to figure out what to call it. And uh, I was writing something about that for teaching tolerance. And then I found something that Katie had already written for teaching tolerance, where she was talking about why students need equity literacy. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, that's the language I want, equity <laughs> literacy. Well, I want to talk about, you know, why do teachers need equity literacy even more than we need cultural competence or mm -hmm. some other things mm -hmm. that people often talk about. So sort of from that, I emailed her and I said, I want to borrow this language that you're using. Uh, and then she and I co-wrote a brief article. Uh, and then when I left academia, I 
wanted to start this uh, Equity Literacy Institute to do more work in schools. And uh, Katie was the first person I called to, to get involved in that. So we're, we've both been a little surprised at how that equity literacy idea has caught people's imaginations. Uh, but uh, but it's it's been great. How do you think the kind of shift in the language is reflecting like shifts in education? So I we think about a lot about the focus on kids as being the kind of the main um, focus of equity work, but a big part of equity literacy is focusing on the adults and how mm-hmm. they how they interact with students in that environment. So how, mm-hmm. how is this refle- your work reflective of what's going on more broadly in education or how do you feel like, are there ways that you're leading kind of, kind of in this way? Because are there people not really talking about it in this way? Is it a kind of new way to think about it? Are you seeing it uh, kind of bigger, broader changes? I mean, there definitely are other people who are doing really incredible work. I think about um, the scholarship of Django Paris, who talks about culturally sustaining pedagogy, building on the work of Gloria Ladson Billings. I mean, there it's not, um, I don't think we're the like first or only ones who are talking about it. I think this short article we wrote is accessible to people. It's just a few pages long. It's in mm-hmm. Ed Leadership. And I think that's why it's been popular. It's like a quick and easy read. And yeah. um, I think especially the way that Paul tends to write is very direct and very clear. And so there's kind of no fuss, no mincing of words that um, the problem with so many, quote, diversity initiatives is that they still center whiteness. They still center yeah. mm-hmm. um, any sort of identity with um, connections to power domination. And so I think the the way that we are in our work, both our writing and then the work we do in schools is trying to strip people of the idea that you can keep doing the same thing, just package mm-hmm. it differently, that that's not actually helping anyone and that's not disrupting inequities. Like that's only helping people in power stay in power. Mm-hmm. So if we really want to disrupt um, inequitable outcomes, uh, you have to shift, like Paul was saying, your ideology. Mm-hmm. We also are really suspicious, I think, and and in all my work with, with teachers and districts over the years, that I understand, and having been a former teacher, I understand the need to like want something I can do on Monday, like this mm-hmm. very right. like, concrete thing. That's why Teachers Pay Teachers is so popular. Oh, right. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> or Pinterest or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I think the idea is that, um, you know, any tool that any of us would suggest to someone, if you haven't shifted your mindset or you're not coming at it from a standpoint of critical consciousness or, you know, critical reflection, you can use any tool in a dangerous, harmful way. So that idea of really having to shift your mindset, I think the other piece of the equity literacy framework that I really appreciate is that it's calling into question the goals. Um, I think a lot of, um, like diversity and inclusion work sort of takes for granted what schools are doing and what schools are about. Um, So one of the chapters, Paul and I are writing a book together right now to try to flesh out this shorter article to give people more to work with. Um, When one of the chapters we're working on says, well, people talk about access, but access Mm -hmm. to what? Like Mm -hmm. giving kids better access to and helping them be more successful in a racist curriculum, does not feel like a win for me. I don't, I don't think hopefully anyone would think that's a win. And yet that's what we see happening all the time. Like, yeah. How can we get more kids in AP and how can we get kids to you know do better on AP history exams when really it's like, well, what, what is the curriculum that we're even exposing them to? What are the 
goals we have for students? Why are those our goals? Um, and I think, I hope I don't, um, I don't know if you use you, someone where I was talking to before about my work in quote elite settings, something yeah. else that happens in a lot of equity and inclusion work is the focus is entirely on minoritized and marginalized youth. And hmm. I want to be very clear that their voices and needs and experiences absolutely should be centered. But if we're trying to disrupt oppression, the engine of oppression is actually within elite communities. And so if we're not thinking about what white kids, for instance, are learning about race and racism, hmm. then we're not like we're only doing half of the work like that. That has to be part right. of it. And when, you know, white affluent kids are graduating and going to college, if those are the only measures we're ever looking at, then we, we think that they're fine and we don't have to worry about them. When really there's tons of research that shows they're developing really problematic understandings of their own racial identity and racism. And so we should be super worried about that. Um, so I, to me, this framework of equity literacy kind of opens up a different ways to identify problems mm -hmm. and then provide some like really, um, I don't want to say concrete steps because it's not really like a step-by-step -step thing, but mm -hmm. is really asking people to think about disruption on multiple levels at the same time, like short-term, long-term, Paul mentioned like sustaining change, not just like an immediate disruption. So mm -hmm. that's a long ramble, but that's one of the reasons <laughs> I'm excited about this framework. That's awesome. Uh could you talk us through the steps a little bit? Um, the last time we talked about it on the show was actually, we'll link to it in the show notes for our, our listeners, um, but Marquita Prinzing brought it up because she does that um, racial mm -hmm. equity, wow, I forgot the title of it, but the racial equity school, I believe, um, in Seattle, so based in Seattle's work. Um, mm -hmm. Can you just walk us through the steps a little bit or explain, I noticed it, you call it the four abilities, is it abilities and dispositions or just abilities? Yeah, there, one of the... I think one of the things that may be a little bit unique is that it's really based around uh, there are the four abilities and then uh, Katie just alluded to one of the principles. So we have these like basic values or principles to guide equity work and then we have the, the four abilities and, and Katie was kind of alluding to those as well. But uh, uh, so for instance, the first ability is just the ability to recognize how inequity and injustice operate in my own sphere of influence and my classroom and my school. Uh, and, and that partially comes from, you know, my experience working in, in uh, schools, uh, supporting schools around their equity efforts and realizing that it seems like the first biggest problem is a lot of people just don't even recognize the biases and, and inequities that are right in front of them. Not, right. not these are horrible racist people, mm. but here is a subtle way that racism is, in oper is operating here or, or class inequity or whatever it is. Mm. And I just don't even recognize it. And if I can't recognize all the ways inequity is operating, then, I'm, then I can't eliminate the inequity because I don't even recognize it happening. So, that's the first is just being able to recognize it. The second way, the second step is uh, sort of that immediate term uh, disruption that Katie was uh, alluding to as well, which is uh, how do I respond to an inequity? If I see something mm -hmm. happening right in front of me or a colleague says something that reflects a deficit view of 
students experiencing poverty or whoever it is, do I know how to interject? Do I know how to name it? Of mm -hmm. course, if I can't recognize it as a deficit viewpoint, then I'm not going to respond to it. So that's why recognizing is the first then, but, but also just responding in the moment's not enough. Mm -hmm. So the third step is redressing, which is getting at the roots of it. So let's say we have a policy uh, or a practice where we're uh, charging $15 for every extracurricular activity mm -hmm. a student uh, wants to participate in. First, do I recognize, well, that's going to give some students more access to other students. Secondly, uh, can I say in the moment, hey, maybe we need to rethink this because mm -hmm. it's who it's giving access to. Uh, but thirdly, I also need to reflect on, well, what is it about the institutional culture or knowledge that ever had us charging $15 mm. to begin with? And right. where else are we applying that kind of thinking? Because we want to get mm. to all of it. So mm -hmm. it's addressing the underlying conditions, being more proactive, um, identifying and eliminating uh, inequities. And then finally, sustain. Do I know how to move forward? Uh, when there's pushback and resistance, do I know how to keep moving forward? I was just thinking about the the issue of of charging students money for activities and how that creates inequities. And um, in our school in our school district, we've had some issues with in the past year with um, funding and just the the way that our school district expects the schools to externalize costs. Yeah. to students yeah. and families it's it's really incredible you just you see that 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 it seems like such a practical solution and such an easy fix but realistically it is a it, for some students and families it's like a devastating barrier like it's not mm -hmm. it's not something that is just as simple as oh uh, you know just write you know bring the cash with you write a check it's not simple for our students mm -hmm. and and so i i hear what you're saying about that it's it's in your you know kind of immediate vicinity addressing your immediate vicinity but also thinking about what power do you have to address any kind of issues mm -hmm. at school district level or within your building because i think if that was pointed out uh, or it was brought up that there might there might actually be some responsiveness if mm -hmm. it was explained that way depending on where you live obviously i think in, where we are that would be that would be heard but not necessarily everywhere well, and it, I think put the cost pushed off onto teachers too. I mm -hmm, think about right. how much teacher out-of-pocket expenses they're paying for all sorts of things, copies yeah. or supplies or whatever. And, you know, I have friends that will um, tell me like, oh, this teacher is raising money through this Kickstarter. Isn't mm -hmm. this great? And I'm, it's like, no, that's actually super depressing. Mm -hmm. Should not be what we have to do. I think um, this, last, this last step that Paul's talking about, the sustaining, I think what that's also calling attention to are the ways in which educators have to be involved beyond their own classroom. And I mm. absolutely remember the kind of bliss that comes with shutting your door. <laughs> you know, like having, <laughs> having a principal that doesn't really pay attention and you can just kind of do what you want to do, whatever with your kids. Yep. Some people can teach like that. And and having like a classroom that you feel like you really can control that space and mm. provide a learning environment that you feel is ethical and humane and you know socially just. But I, you know, what's frustrating is that is absolutely the mindset that leads us to this current situation that we're in with public schools when teachers abdicate any sort of political voice mm -hmm. or power 
to other people. And I, I get that it's a hassle and I get that it's not why people go into teaching. You know, you go into it to work with kids or to share your passion for content, but you know, that, that last ability to sustain and even the one to redress, which means looking at systems and policy and data, it, it's like this skill set. We have to do a much better job in teacher education and in-service PD at equipping teachers with skills to do data analysis from an equity perspective, hmm. to be able to understand policy and speak back to state legislatures, to organize, to mobilize. Like some of these, the, those root causes that Paul is talking about are not tweakable even at a district level. Hmm. Sometimes they're coming from the state, right. sometimes they're even coming from the federal level, like where are those roots? And we have to have teachers who are really savvy about policy. And that isn't something that is usually found in teacher ed programs. Mm -hmm. um, it's not like a super sexy topic sometimes. Like, <laughs> again, the teachers are like, well, just I need to know what to do on Monday with my yeah, kids. Yeah. And these bigger, longer term things seem so disconnected yeah. from what you need to do to just like meet the needs of the kids in your class, yeah. uh, which I, you know, really sympathize with, but that work is so much harder and more complicated when we don't attend to these other spheres where our voices actually really matter. And I, I think we've seen some incredible action taken, like I'm thinking of the teacher strikes that have been happening all over the country yeah. that have had incredible successes and, mm. uh, you know, just really wanting to call on, especially teacher educators for us to do a better job of making sure that our candidates are you know capable of this but also see it as part of the job of being a teacher yeah that mm -hmm. this is the work of teaching is to advocate in these other spaces and to be able to make it really clear what you need and why yeah I think um, also that you can't just rely on the principal to do that absolutely right I think also framing it as um I think people sh also shy away from act like activism outside of their school buildings or because either they feel like they don't have expertise or they feel like because of what they've been told. I know that uh, we were taught a lot, even in my teacher ed program, which was a pretty progressive teacher ed program to avoid politicizing issues in the classroom. Right. And so I think that teachers don't they are told they're actually given the message of like, don't don't do the political game, right? Like you don't do politics in the classroom and that translates for a lot of folks into like you don't politicize your work outside the classroom either. And I disagree with that. Um, but I think that's part of, in some teacher ed programs, that's a big, that's a big thing. It's like, don't, you're not, your role as a teacher is not to be, to be, to get into, into politics. And I think that that is a real, that message is a real disservice to new teachers. Mm-hmm. Justice isn't political. Um, <laughs> we need to take a quick break, and then we have a few more questions for you all. Hey, Hope, did you have a good weekend? Yeah, it was great. Nate and I were out of town Friday and Saturday night, and then nice. on Sunday we flew back home. Wait. How is that possible? We were messaging. You and, you and I were messaging each other back and forth all day. You were on a flight? <laughs> Girl, you know about free messaging on Alaska flights, don't you? No, I did not know about that. Maybe a certain podcast co-host could have told me. I'm telling you now, it's amazing you can chat for free with Facebook Messenger, iMessage, and WhatsApp from the flight. So like in the air. Wow. So instead of grading papers on the flight, I could be chatting with my IWL BFF for free? Yes. It's truly magical. This changes everything. It really does. We can do all kinds of podcasting notes. We can do, have Seriously. a little chat about our next Pinterest for episode. For free! Yeah. So to book your next trip and send messages from the sky... 
Visit alaskaair.com. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. And we're back. Welcome back. We'd like to um, continue the conversation, but talk more specifically about the ways you think you are seeing educators applying the framework. So I know both of you do some work in um, universities and then also with some school district and various levels of contracting and consulting. Can you speak a little bit to how you're seeing folks implement the framework or at least wrestle with the concepts they're in? Oh, uh, you know, it's great because we, we uh, you know, we're doing some work with schools and districts ourselves, but we uh, are more and more just getting messages from uh, people in schools and districts who are saying they're using it uh, for various ways. I think the uh, I think mostly it's being used to try to to uh, deepen the conversation about equity and to keep equity at the center uh, of the of the conversation, uh, which I think is great. In a way, that's what it's in a way that's what it's designed. Uh, to do. It's not designed to be prescriptive. Here are 10 things you can do. It's designed to uh, create a framework for people to develop their equity efforts uh, in, in their schools or districts in a way that is going to maximize transformative potential of what they're doing and make sure they're not kind of floating off into celebrating diversity and thinking that's going to create more equity or <laughs> You know, starting student clubs and thinking that in and of itself, it's not that those things aren't important and contributive to a bigger vision, but I think part of the problem is a lot of schools are putting so much of their effort into those sorts of things uh, that that uh, uh, that they're not doing the doing things that that could be more transformative. The most exciting things I hear are the ways that people are using the principles. We have this like list of basic principles. That's what we're writing the book about, that uh, to kind of guide the equity work and to, so that they could say, "Oh, this sounds like we're kind of slipping away from." Like one of the principles is "fix injustice, not kids." Mm -hmm. so huh. Justice, not kids, principle, and so people can use it just to name. Okay, we were talking about equity. Now suddenly we're talking about how do we fix families of color so that they can fit in better to this inequitable institution. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, sort of providing that kind of uh, uh, guidance for whatever they're focusing on. I think that's the way it's mostly being applied mm -hmm. right now. Can you sneak peek one more principle for us? <laughs> Well, see, well, Katie talked about the, uh, which one did you talk about, Katie? Oh, that, that's my favorite one, because I, I think it's one that sometimes gets left out of conversations. It's called the access to what? principle yeah. okay. and so that's saying like you know all a lot of arguments are um like policymakers or educators will talk about access 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 like we just need to give kids access which i think is connected to the principle paul just talked about which is somehow thinking like there's nothing wrong with what we're doing we just need to figure out how to plug kids in better like either to make them assimilate more or, you know, we just need to fix them somehow because there's nothing wrong with the system. Mm. So this access to what principle is really pointing out um, all the ways that we need to reconsider what it is we're even asking kids to do, asking kids to read, mm. asking kids to think about, like, why are we doing any of that? And I, I think um, one of the reasons I really like that is because it expands to to thinking about kids that on paper look successful, 
are, it's really problematizing that population of kids to wondering like, but what are they good at? And do we even right. want them to be good at that? And is that leading to bigger problems down the road? Spoiler, it is. So what, <laughs> like, what kinds of things can we bring to the table to critique as part of the problem? And it's one of those things like chicken egg, but once you start centering it, mm. you can kind of knock out a bunch of problems at once. Like, well, if you're worried about why aren't, um, you know, kids of color participating in these classes, you know, there's usually lots of reasons like mm. counselors counseling them away from taking those classes or um, ha- having the classes um, have the prerequisite of a teacher recommendation. And so then it is bringing in teacher bias into the equation. But another piece of it might be, well, that class is just really crappy curriculum and the kids are responding in a way that makes sense. That's rational. Like, I don't want to be exposed to that. Like it's gross, you know? So Hmm. what, so if you are then building a curriculum that's actually attending to these, um, you know, to these problems. And Paul mentioned when we were first building out the framework, I had written this article about equity literacy that was saying, um, kids do, you know, this, this is, it's not politicizing the classroom because the classroom's already a political space, but right. it's just saying, you know, we need kids that are savvy and knowledgeable about inequities that exist in the world. That doesn't mean we need every single kid to agree to a solution. Like mm-hmm. that to me is where we need to be, you know, respectful and inclusive and really think through like all the different ways to potentially solve problems, but we, we need to be on the same page about what those problems are. Like kids need to know racism exists still. Like that's kind of a no brainer, right? For instance. So if we are thinking about what the curriculum should be and it's a better curriculum, then that clears up some of these access problems because different kinds of students will respond in in ways that we want to see. Also, there might be students that don't do as well as they used to because they can no longer perform success the same ways, but that's actually what we need to know. You know, we want kids to be more knowledgeable and better at these things. And the fact that some are are skating through a story I've told in a lot of different workshops. Um, I was working at a high school with a team of my colleagues and we did a focus groups of students of color and then focus groups of white students. And as a white person, I was helping to facilitate the white student group. And this kid who was going off to an Ivy League college and had an above 4.0 4.0 GPA, like by all measures was a re- like the pride of the school. I asked the group where in the curriculum they'd ever learned about racism. Mm. And it was crickets for a while. And this is this very um, elite, six, quote, successful suburban high school. And they said, well, maybe like in social studies, when you learn about slavery and the civil rights movement, which of course, like, the kid first said, um, well, I guess we learn about black people when we learned about slavery and the civil rights movement. First, so first of all, he thinks that racism means learning about black people. Secondly, yep. the only time in U.S. history that you would learn about black people is during slavery and civil rights movement, also a big problem. And then he said, um, but that's the only time that that they were ever really involved or important. So why would like to talk about them at other times would be to change history. And that's not good. So that's like the level of dysfunctional thinking that that kid had about really basic historical accuracy, but also just how it plays out in today's world is deeply disturbing. And the fact that he's, you know, going off to a fancy college and he has all the accolades academically, that is not a success story to me. So we have to start thinking about, um, 
what it is we're even asking kids to learn mm-hmm. as one of the principles from this framework. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how um, not untypical, I don't know what the right word is, that that story probably is, right? Atypical. How common that is. Atypical. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's late It's late at night here in Abu Dhabi. Um, how, how, the, how common that is, right? And, and really examining, um, just the importance of examining that, right? And re-looking re- at our mm-hmm. curriculum in that sense. Um, Annie, did you want to ask the f- next question? Yeah, I was just going to mention something first that um, I um, teach AP US history. And one of the issues we run up against is our textbook is terrible. And, uh, you know, if we talk about systemic issues, textbooks are a systemic issue because our entire school district has the same textbook for AP US history at all of the high schools. And it's it was decided by a committee 15 years ago or whatever. And as a joke, I bought the first edition of the textbook, which came out in 1956. And the only thing that's really changed significantly is they took out some racial slurs. They took out some um, language that was kind of like like colloquial like idioms or like colloquialisms of like that time period are not in there anymore and they added a few chapters because it ended at you know in the beginning of the cold war but it was like i mean it was it hasn't changed right and so we think about like the information kids are exposed to mm-hmm. even not even from their teachers but from all these different from their teachers, plus from all these other resources that are part of that system of their education, right? And these are these are supposed to be college level textbooks, and they're not serving our students in a way that is equitable. Um, and, and the way we use them is has to be um, critical, right? Because I don't use it, I don't use it at face value anymore. Like at first I did, I was like, okay, I just read the pages, and then we'll talk about them. And then students were reading them, they're like, this is terrible. And here's why, right? It's like, okay, right? And so some of that feedback coming from students is so invaluable, right? Um, I actually wanted to ask you, because this reminds me um, about some of your work around uh, schools bringing up more trauma for students. We talk about trauma-informed practices, but I know you both mm-hmm. have written or, or spoken a little bit about that um, on elsewhere. Can you talk a little bit about here? So um, to me, that seems like a big part of this access conversation. So we say at school, you know, we should be trauma-informed and like meet our students where we're at uh, versus we actually, school as institutions are re-traumatizing kids all the time. Can you talk a little bit about that idea? Uh, sure. I, I think part of it is, I think part of our response to that sort of thing is not to suggest that there isn't some value and that there isn't value in trauma informed uh, practices or social emotional learning or whatever the shiny new thing is. Uh, In fact, you know, I as I experienced sexual abuse as a child and I wish my teachers had, you know, my mostly what happened was I, I was behaving in ways that were perfectly reasonable for a kid who had that experience and being punished. So I felt like I was being punished for for being sexually abused. So I wish there was some mindset around that. Mm-hmm. I think the problem comes in, uh, this, this actually provides an opportunity just to quickly mention another one of the equity literacy principles, which is the mm-hmm. direct, we call it the direct confrontation principle that the only way to create more equity is to directly confront inequity. Mm-hmm. But the tendency in schools is not to say, here's how racism is operating, we're going to eliminate racism. The tendency is, well, let's talk about how do we help students cope with stuff. Or it's, it's So many of these newfangled kind of uh, uh, initiatives and practices and programs 
are about how do we adjust the emotions and the emotional well-being and uh, you know of the students. And again, I'm not saying that attending to the emotional well-being of students is not important. Mm. Uh, I think the the point is that uh, point number one is that uh, that cannot replace equity efforts. Hmm. Uh, and one of the demonstrations of that is, you know, for some students, I was doing, I was actually doing a focus group of uh, LGBTQ students at a school in New Jersey. And, uh, you know, we were talking about different uh, challenges and this was at, at, that they were experiencing. And this was at a school that where trauma informed stuff and social emotional stuff was huge. And I asked them, well, you know, I asked these these students, uh, these were uh, middle school students, and I asked them, well, is the trauma-informed stuff and the social-emotional stuff, is that having any impact on your teachers doing a better job? And one of the students said, actually, the school is the most traumatic thing in my life. And so that's part of that point. It's not that trauma-informed practices yeah. aren't bad. It's that they need to start with what are the ways in which kids are traumatized in school mm -hmm. from an equity point of view, from all points of view? But what are the ways that we're recreating or creating uh, tra traumas for students? And if we're not addressing that as a central concern of trauma-informed practices, uh, I think then it just looks like a detour around a more serious focus on mm -hmm. equity. Mm -hmm. uh, so, there's, yeah, go ahead. There's another scholar um, whose work I absolutely adore, Bettina Lev, and she um, is a black scholar and talks about a really fantastic critique of grit and just uh -oh. the way that like growth mindset and grit gets applied to black students. And she just tears it apart to say, do you know the community that doesn't need grit, that doesn't need to be taught resilience um, and survivance, you know, are Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities, because that's the mm -hmm. only way that they've even made it. And, and just the fury that comes along with being told, like, oh, this kid just needs to have more grit, and they'll do better in school, again, without changing that mindset or the like a critical consciousness of how oppression operates in systems and practices, mm -hmm. that is often how it gets applied, which it, which does nothing but just deepen and perpetuate the pain. Like the student mm -hmm. Paul talked about to have a school that says they really care about trauma and then yeah. to continue to traumatize you is worse than a school that doesn't pay any attention to it at all. Yeah. So it also puts a it, weird emphasis on personal choice when you think about things like poverty. So yeah. like students are told, you just have to make these certain financial choices or do these certain things, right? And you will not be poor. This is your fault, right? And so there's also <laughs> that piece with, you know, um, I don't know, thinking about grit as being you just put your nose to the grindstone and grab your bootstraps and you just do it um, when in reality that's not – that those aren't the – Which, of course, like no teacher is going to say I'm anti-resilient. Right. Or, like, I'm yeah. anti Who's no, going to say that? Like, <laughs> we want – our kids like keep trying and you know like I know that the most shallow definition everyone's like yeah of course but mm -hmm. to Paul's point when that becomes the answer right to disparities you are completely missing the forest for the trees like yeah. that is not the solution to that problem like if you're going to disrupt racism you have to disrupt racism that's mm -hmm. can't be oh we just need to do better um social emotional learning mm -hmm. and then it'll be fine which again puts the onus 
on the people who are experiencing oppression yeah. instead of putting it on the people who are perpetuating it. Have you That's received good. a lot of any kind of specific pushback on any of any of your ideas that kind of stands out? Like what are, are is anyone re- kind of resisting your ideas or, you know, what does that look like um, or sound like when people say, no, this isn't this wouldn't work for me because or I wouldn't be able to do this piece because we're talking about like like in-service teachers are you getting mm-hmm. any pushback on your ideas. Well, I'll say there's a lot of pushback on the stuff we were just talking about because people, their identities become so invested mm. in PBIS or whatever mm. the thing is, restorative practices, whatever the thing is, they become so invested uh, that, uh, that I, I, in a way, I think there's almost like a cultish thing around uh, uh, some of these uh, things. But yeah, I think that, but I also think that I, a really meaningful concern that's often raised for teachers is that, um, you know, I, it sounds like we're talking about this big structural stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think I have control over this classroom, not that big structural stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's important as we talk about addressing racism and that sort of thing that we that we make it clear that we're not saying that every you know fourth grade teacher that it's their responsibility to eliminate global racism (laughs) but understanding the way that racism outside my sphere of influence is impacting the children within my sphere of influence that can help me be a better teacher to those uh students yeah so, uh, and that's why part of, part of what we talk about with the equity literacy framework is, you know, how do I become a threat to inequity within my sphere of influence? I don't have to take on the world, yeah. but how do I do this in my own sphere? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I actually wanted to ask um, Paul about this really controversial tweet you tweeted last week. Oh, geez, which one? I follow Paul on Twitter and Paul, you got some gems. Uh, I, 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 First of all, your tweet about um, Ruby Payne about emotional poverty. I just oh about, Lord. I, I just, just about croaked. That was that really here. funny, but hope you go ahead. No, I was just going to ask you, since you're talking about pushback and people that are, um, the things that are making people uncomfortable, uh, you just really hit a nerve there with white liberalism and white liberals. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what, I mean, for both of you, how are you seeing that manifest? And then what are you doing in response? I think that's another piece we always want to talk about with our listeners. How do we respond to that? Well, I, I'll just, you know, I think, uh, I think most of the, my audience, in other words, the people who are connected with me over social media and other places, are predominantly white people who see themselves as very liberal. It's not a critique of anyone as an individual. It's a critique. In fact, it's the same critique Martin Luther King Jr. had when he said that you know the biggest barrier to mm-hmm. racial justice is not the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate. Mm. who in the end is more devoted to order than to justice, mm-hmm. uh, who prefers a, uh, uh, what is the thing about peace? I, I can't remember. Uh, anyway, so. Uh, prefers so an unjust, I, I, a, to unjust peace. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yeah. so in, in a way, I see part of my responsibility is not just trying to, um, encourage people who have never thought about equity to start thinking about equity, 
but to encourage people who have been thinking about equity mm. to think about it in a more complex way and, mm. and kind of see the, the damage that white people often do, uh, not out of bad intentions, uh, sometimes out of bad intentions, but, but out of sort of mistaking uh, sort of fluffy liberalist kind of things for anti-racist kinds of things. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I, I expect when I post things like that, that it's going to touch a nerve uh, for some people. And, uh, you know, and there are, well, I expect that it's going to touch a nerve and, and I, I feel okay about that. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm naming something that is important and I'm naming it as much as a, of a as a self-reflection as I'm naming it as anything else. Mm -hmm. That's good. Katie, you want to talk about any controversial tweets? <laughs> <laughs> I, your, I, your Twitter I, profile is a, lo a little more. No, uh, I have, I technically have a Twitter account just because I would have <laughs> built it into it by a friend and colleague, but I like, I, Twitter stresses me out, but I, I really appreciate those conversations and those pushing people efforts because I, I think that's absolutely, Absolutely right. And then the work I've done in schools and even with colleagues and um, thinking about activism work too, That and thinking about my own identity and how I have to constantly push myself and keep reading and learning and putting myself in situations. And, um, you know, absolutely, I think the toughest places to work are the places that think they have it all figured out. Like I mentioned, I went to grad school um, at Wisconsin-Madison. Madison fancies itself a very progressive city that's majority white and talk to any black indigenous people of color who live in Madison and you will get a very different mm -hmm. description of their experiences and their time there. Um, and the university has actually been just going through a lot with um, the, there was like a homecoming video that got produced by a student committee that didn't show a single um, person of color in it. And um, yes. even though they had collaborated with groups who then were cut from the video and just the the, the clumsy, horrible response yeah. and, you know, just the ways that um, students on the campus feel erased and invisible and marginalized. I mean, mm -hmm. it, but you have this city that just thinks of itself, the white, you know, people in the city think of themselves as super progressive, like it couldn't possibly happen here. This goes back to the very mm -hmm. principle or the very first ability that Paul talked about is recognizing. If you can't mm -hmm. even see how in your own spaces that this is happening and you can't, you know, detach intention from impact, those are just like 101 basic things that have to happen. So I, yeah. you know, I think that it's just super common and a huge problem. And I, I'm grateful for podcasts like this and, and resources. And I'm glad Paul tweets because I don't want to. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think that's um, really, really helpful. Yeah. So as we, thank you for that. Um, as we wrap up is, I know we've kind of touched on, I actually think we, uh, my last question was going to be about how do listeners, you know, implement the things you're talking about, which I think you've kind of touched on, like the work starting with yourself, um, examining your own privileges and so on. Is there anything else um, you might say, or, or you're thinking about as we end here, um, that our listeners, whether educators or not educators can um, use the framework or challenge themselves in a different way that you're kind of lingering on? Mm. Or anything you or anything that you really want to say that has nothing to do with that question, but you're like, ooh, I want to make sure like, I say there's anything this. that was well, left unsaid that it's important to say 
to say maybe you have this um question reserved for the very very end but there are a few resources that i wanted to just shout out is that is this a good time to do that uh, yeah, well, we, we'll have spe- we have a special segment for that. Oh. Let's, let's, let's do it. Now. It's called <laughs> Do Your Fudging Homework. Interchangeable. White ladies! <laughs> All right, in this segment, we've got homework for you with four educators on the show today. <laughs> you got. You know it's going to be good homework. homework. You know it's going to be good homework. <laughs> so my first homework is go actually click on the links in the show notes, um, research about the equity literacy framework, think about how you can apply it in your own workplace in education. But also I think the principles actually hold true and stand true for I'm thinking about office work, I'm thinking about really any other job. Yeah. Um, I think using that, like you said, developing the literacy for yourself and just looking at the world around you in a different way, especially in 2020, we need a lot more of this. So that's my homework for folks. All right. Other homework? My homework is uh, follow Paul on Twitter. I follow Katie on Twitter, although I mean, don't there might follow me. I don't follow her on Twitter. <laughs> don't follow her on Twitter. Is there somewhere better to find you online? Do you have a website or? I mean, yeah, I have a website. You guys are the worst. I it's, it's a cute just... website. I'm gonna link to it. I already linked we'll link, to it. We got it. We got it. it we'll get a link to it. it and then um, I'll... actually, yeah. Oh, yeah, you go ahead and I'll share. A couple well, I was gonna say, um, at, at, or if that, if you'd prefer, read all of their written work and buy their book when it comes there out. You go. That was my other one. Perfect. <laughs> what are you going to say, What's Katie? the title of your book, actually? Yeah, I what's don't it think called? we mentioned that. Uh, we don't know yet. Nice. <laughs> okay. That's not the title. We actually literally don't know yet. Actually, that would be a good title for your book. <laughs> we don't know yet. And that could be like, we're still learning how to, how to make the world a better place. So we don't know yet. That could be the title of your book. Um, uh, cool. We, well, I, that's my homework to read everything. Are we supposed to assign homework as well? Yes. <laughs> yeah, please do. So things that listeners can do or read or watch or just, are, as our tagline says, be less basic. So anything that makes them a better human beings, especially for the white folks out there. Well, I, I've been reading about how homework does not have the impact we thought it you know, <laughs> I, I My homework is to reject everyone else's homework assignment. Oh, no. no. I'm just joking. I think Fantastic. everyone... I I I think um, I think one thing that uh, to do is check out. Uh, hopefully, I'm not overlapping some of the resources Katie was going to mention. But uh, I think um, one thing I've really appreciated is watching how teaching tolerance has grown into uh, an organization that that is pr- uh, producing more powerful stuff. So to to look mm-hmm. at their stuff and support. Uh, the, their uh, stuff, uh, and and then also some of these uh, like education, uh, social justice education kind of collaboratives that are doing good mm-hmm. things like the New York uh, um, Collaborative for, uh, of Radical Educators and all mm-hmm. of the uh, uh, social justice, uh, equity and social justice, teachers for social justice, uh, organizations to check those groups out and to support those groups, uh, I think, uh, would be a good thing for everyone to do. All right. That was good. That was good. That was good. That was homework. Great. <laughs> now we're now we're thrown in the trash. No. <laughs> I've got a random list that I'm notorious for like always doing more is more. So I get it. Like a random list of things for people to think about that I'm really enjoying right now. So um, one um, conference that I wanted to let people know, it's only in its third year, but it's run out of the Carter Center for Black History, run by Dr. LeGarrette King in, at the University of Missouri. 
and they have their conference, um, Teaching Black History Conference, that's this summer, July 24th through the 25th in Kansas City. And this year it's focused on what's called Black Herstories. So looking at the history of Black women, it's they usually have an incredible lineup of speakers and sessions and just a really, um, Dr. King's work is incredible. So I would strongly suggest looking at the Carter Center in that conference. Um, another great conference is Free Minds, Free People. Um, that rotates around. So that's one to put on people's radar. That's like educators and activists and scholars coming together. It's like the most nourishing conference I've ever been to. Um, in terms of some reading and listening, um, I just finished, this book came out about a year ago, An African-American and Latinx History of the United States by Paul Ortiz. Mm. It's so fabulous. It it's blew really good. my mind. I loved every single word. Um, I'm kind of like plowing through a whole bunch of history books right now, but that one was just a total delight and mm -hmm. um, really fabulous. So not just for social studies no. teachers, like every human it's being. Well, it's well book. written too. It's easy. It's a, it's kind of a quick read in the sense that it's and not because it's not because it's easy, but because it's, but because it, her writing is just so beautiful. Like it's great. Yeah. Mm. Highly recommend. It's, it's really, really good book. Um, a listen, this is going to sound strange, but I have <laughs> definitely people have thought I was nuts to recommend this and then have really have called me like, I'm sitting on the side of the road crying at this episode. Thank you for uh -oh. making me listen to this. It's um, Jad Applerod from Radio Lab. It's his new podcast about Dolly Parton, Dolly Parton's America. <laughs> it's so, I can't even tell you like all of the sort of critical identity, social movement issues that it draws yeah. on, it will blow your mind. It will surprise you. You will laugh. You will cry. You will get frustrated. Um, it's just a fabulous listen. Um, and then because I'm not great on social media, but there are a couple of shout outs I wanted to give. Um, one is a really good friend and colleague of mine who does absolutely fabulous work in elementary social studies and children's literature. Her name is Marie Nassim Rodriguez. She is an amazing Twitterer. So tweeter, I don't even know yeah, what you say. Yeah, uh, Twitter. Her handle, do you say handle? Her address? Yes, good job. Yeah. good job, yeah. You got if it. You, if, um, Nassim R-D-Z, so N-A-S-E-E-M-R-D-Z. She's got a great website as well. Um, she's really focused specifically on Asian American and Latinx representation in children's literature, okay. as well as um, teachers of color. She's just absolutely fabulous. So I would follow her. Um, and then another Facebook group that is technically open, you just have to answer a couple questions is one I co-facilitate with my colleague Katie Payne. Um, it's called CREST, the Critical Resources for Elementary Social Studies Teachers, mm -hmm. and it has now over a thousand members and people are super responsive and it's all, all um, elementary teachers committed to social justice and doing like really radical critical work in their classrooms, asking each other for help and resource sharing and, you know, all sorts of great things. So that's good. Um, and then the last shout out, because this organization means so much to me, Paul's point about supporting NICOR and, you know, other organizations, mm -hmm. um, Rethinking Schools and the Zen Education oh, yeah. Project are two of the just such wonderful <laughs> organizations that really depend on the support of people who read their work and use their work. Mm -hmm. So if you are looking for a place to send a few extra bucks or to subscribe, um, Rethinking Schools does just such incredible work and the Zen Education Project is always up to awesome new projects. So. 
That's my very random hodgepodge list of homework. Rethinking school is so close to my heart. It's our first when I, so my ed program was very, um, I don't know, hippie, dippy or whatever, social justice oriented, <laughs> which is a better way to say it. Um, but that was the first thing they subscribed for us, Rethinking School magazines. And those are like, a, whenever I weeded through my ed books, like those were always the books that I not, I did not, I've not, I just use them continually over and over again, totally mm-hmm. worth it. Um, really critical, useful stuff, and very challenging too. Yeah, and Zen Education talking- Project. I'm, Zen Education Project. All the stuff they publish online is all things that have been published in print. And if you think about how much is available for free, it's like it, just yep. support. The, I mean, like it's like supporting public radio. Just like do it. it like, is. Just do it. Like just pay your ten dollars a month <laughs> and just do it. Like what are you waiting for? Agreed. Well, thank you. We don't want to keep you much longer. We know you got a million other things to do. And again, thank you for the time thank zone so much. craziness and oh. scheduling and all that stuff. We really appreciate it. Thank fun. you for all you do. And I really enjoy the conversation. And Paula, it's good, it's good to talk to you and <laughs> share a little bit about what we're working on. That's all so yeah. good. We're so happy to have all right. you. All right. Have a good after or a good morning, I guess, for all of you all. <laughs> have a good, good night, Hope. Okay, bye. bye. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We We fly fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. Oh, Paul, I didn't even realize you could see my face. Annie and I are just like making faces. (laughs) I know. I made a face at Doug a few minutes ago and I was like, everybody saw that. (laughs) The Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Citizen Tacoma, Crossing Division, Flounder's B-Team, We Art Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.